Father, we dedicate the next uh, 35, 40 minutes, whatever it's going to be, to you and your truth. We want to build each other's faith. We want to strengthen each other's ministry. We want to refine each other's theological grasp of reality. And we want to stoke each other's fires of passion for your supremacy. And we don't want to waste our time on non-essentials. And I don't want to answer too long when I should be answering short or say anything unhelpful. So guard us from the evil one and guard us from pride and guard us from fear and give us wisdom. Give us Solomon-like wisdom. Cut the baby in half kind of wisdom and Stephen kind of wisdom that when questions were asked, they couldn't resist the wisdom. They could only kill him. They couldn't resist his wisdom. So, Grant, I pray that there would be wisdom in this room now for questioner and answerer and that it would be a a great God-exalting, faith-building, mission-advancing, church-healing, marriage-strengthening time. In Jesus' name. Raise your hand. It's more of a personal question. Um, do you own a gun? Say it again. Do you own a gun? I do not own a gun. Never have owned a gun. Except BB gun. Had a BB gun one time. And I wouldn't want one because they're dangerous. People get killed who own guns. Pastor. Maybe I shouldn't be the one who, does, who points to people. You're going to need to stand up because yeah, you can see okay. your arms. Okay, here we go. Re- relative to the subject of God-centered ministry and, and courage in doing this, can you speak to the relationship of prayer and fasting to that? Unless, of course, you're planning to address no, it. No, no. I, I don't have any particular plans for speaking to prayer and fasting and God-centered ministry. Um, Jesus said, when you fast... Wash your face and comb your hair, not if you fast, wash your face and comb your hair. And he said in chapter 9 of Matthew, that was chapter 6, when he said in chapter 9, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So I think fasting is an expected part of the Christian life. And that the function of it is to put a physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence, I need you more than I need food. That's what fasting is. It's a, it's a physical exclamation point at the end of a prayer. Come, I need you, I want you, I long for you, I'm hungry for you, I thirst for you. You can say that, but if you never... Tell your body or your soul with your body, I really mean that. With a little bit of self-denial, the authenticity of it doesn't ring as true as it would if you accompanied it with regular fasting. And uh, there are no rules laid down whatsoever in the Bible on this, as far as I can see. I wouldn't prescribe daily, weekly, monthly, or anything. I wouldn't tell you, presume to tell you how to do it. I wouldn't say everybody's got to do a 40-day fast, or everybody's got to do a three-week fast, or everybody's got to fast during Lent, or anything. I would just say, you go home, if this is a new thought to you, and fasting is not part of your life, just go home and read those texts, and 
Get my book on fasting if you want to know some other texts. And then just ask God, uh, how should I build this into my life? And, and I think he'll bring to your mind appropriate ideas and, uh, and, and you'll do it. And it, it basically is a intensifier of passion is what it is. It's an intensifier of devotion to Christ because food is a massive power in our lives. It's killing lots of women. I stood up and did a sermon on lust one time at a Southern Baptist gathering up in, uh, where was that? Where I did that? No, the Cove. It was the Ridgecrest. Is that the Southern Baptist place? So there's about 800 missionaries there. And I just laid hold on those guys, wrung their necks because they were going to fire five missionaries that afternoon for pornography. And I just wrung their necks and said, come on, we can lick this thing, we can fight this thing. And a woman came up to me and she said, thank you so much for that. You know what every woman was hearing when you said sex? I said, no, what? She said, food. Now, that's probably an overstatement. I know. But she said that to me. She said, I and my friends were taking you men struggle with this thing you call lust and pornography. And we're thinking Oreo cookies. Or whatever you happen to binge with. Whatever you do on the sly, whatever you keep on your desk, whatever you do when your husband's not looking. And, and this, I mean, it's killing. It's killing young women. All over the place. Food in our culture is just massive. And all that goes with it, you know, figure goes with it. Pumping iron for guys and making sure you don't have whatever that stuff is called on your thighs for women. And, and uh, uh, just we're so drawn into what food can or can't do for us that it's just destroying many people. Now, fasting can can be terribly abused in this regard. I mean, that's what some disorders are. Some eating disorders are fasting gone crazy. And so I have to be real careful here. But I say a, a sober-minded view of food. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, I will not be enslaved by anything. Coffee. Diet pop, alcohol, ibuprofen, valium, food of any kind, sex, pornography. I will not be enslaved if I find myself getting to a point where I can't function without this. I'm drawn to this like I bat my eyelashes. I'm going to. Crucify this thing. And fasting just kind of is a rhythm where you, you, you check yourself. I'll tell you, when I fast, I find out horrible things about myself. Especially about anger. Especially about anger. And how quick my threshold of anger lowers when I'm not getting food in this stomach. Isn't that awful? Find out what's really making you sanctified. Food. That's not good. Uh, see, I've got to be careful not to talk too long about each question. Here's a microphoneless person. Oh, but I guess, how do you do this now? How do people get the microphones? They just kind of appear in people's hands? 
So if he wants a microphone up here, how should he get one? We'll, we'll just go, if it's okay, we'll go from side to side. All right. And, and you just kind of wave at people, I suppose. Go ahead. Uh, my question goes along with what you were talking about this morning. I just got engaged, and my fiancé and I feel called to the nations, and we know that a price of that is suffering, and that kind of blows our parents' minds. So my question is, how do you hate your father and mother and renounce everything and at the same time honor your father and mother? That's exactly the way to ask the question. Uh, somebody asked it to me last last week. A text that I have gone to for years is First Peter chapter 2, I think it's verse 16 or 17, where it says, Honor all men. And when I used to teach First Peter at Bethel College, one of my exegesis questions was, how do you honor a murderer, a rapist? Because it says, honor all men. And the answer is, you don't honor a murderer the same way you honor a person who lays down his life for somebody or a law-abiding citizen. You honor a murderer by not treating him like a dog. That is, you give him a fair trial. And you find a good lawyer for him. And when you're dealing with him in prison, you care about his soul. You ask him hard questions and you plead with him to get right with his maker. He's created in the image of God. Don't throw your life away. And if possible, you lead him to Jesus and then pray for him all the way to the electric chair that he will die well and go to be with Jesus. That's the way you honor a murderer. So, the point is not that your parents are in anything like that category. (laughs) There's a principle I'm getting at here. The principle is honoring people is done differently from the kind of person to the kind of person you're dealing with. Honor doesn't always look the same. So, if you have a parent who, I don't know whether your parents are believers or not, and... and, uh, that wouldn't necessarily change things. But to, to honor a parent who is disapproving of your deep sense of calling to Jesus would be, I think, primarily an attitudinal thing. You would say to mom and dad, not, I don't care what you think, I'm out of here, I belong to Jesus. That's, that is not the way a Christian talks to a parent. A Christian talks to a parent, no matter what age you are, saying, you're my parent. I owe you more than I could ever say, no matter how bad they've been. I owe you. And I long to respect you, honor you, uphold you. And you know that I've become a Christian and I have a deep allegiance to Jesus. And you and I are seeing things differently right now. I grieve over that. I'm willing to work on that. I don't want to be hasty here. I want to listen to you. Talk to me about why what I might be doing is foolish. I won't run away and say, I don't care what you think. I do care what you think. You listen. You talk. And you say, Mom and Dad, could we agree to disagree at this moment and that I'm grown now? I sense that in my relationship with God, it means this for my wife and me. I know that's hard for you. And I'm not doing this by blowing you off. It grieves me that we're not the same. But can you... Honor me as a grown child by saying, I respect your view and I'll honor you and your difference and we won't have this horrible breach. 
I think that kind of talk is deeply respectful. Though you will probably do what they are hurt by. So, um, I think that's the way you have to... When we are in relationships, parent-child, parishioner-pastor, citizen-governor, um, pupil-teacher, employee-boss, I think God's will is that all of those be deferential relationships. Submissive, respectful relationships where the under person respects and honors the over person. Even though those structures are artificially created, say, by a job you have and you have a boss and you, it doesn't mean he's worth any more than you are. It just means in the relationship, a certain way of honoring him is appropriate. He may be an out and out unbeliever and you're a believer and he's your boss. And so you will find ways of according him appropriate boss-like respect while radically disapproving of what he does on the weekend. Disrespecting what he does on the weekend. So that's a principle. Not easy to apply, but that's the way I'd go about it. Yeah, my question is, um, could you give some guidelines or comment on a situation where um, a church let's say, given what you said about the culture here, where a church may not, the church leaders, a group of leaders in a church may not be fully motivated or oriented in a God-centered way, how would you as the, the, the leader or the pastor of that church bring those folks along or lead them in a more God-centered direction as the leaders of that kind of Good question. Well, that was true of my church 21 years ago. And, and still is true of many people. There's so many new people that are having to get on board. It's always true, really. If you have a growing church or a church in a community with a lot of flux, it's always going to be true. You know, you'll never get to a point where the whole church is, has got it. You'll always be trying to help people get it. So um, I think one of the most basic things I say, and it'll be my next message here in a couple hours, is number one, and these are not in order of importance necessarily. So this is just the first one that's coming to my mind, and it's sort of my, my favorite one. Number one, out-rejoice your people. Beat them at the joy enterprise. And do it biblically. That is, exegete Bible, preach exposition, so that if they have a beef to pick, it's with the Bible. But they'll be disinclined to pick it because you seem so happy about it. (laughs) If you hammer them over the head with a frown and a growl only, they'll pick it easy. They'll want to pick everything you say apart. They won't like anything you say, even though it looks like it's really there. But if you are out rejoicing them, they'll kind of feel like he must be seeing something that I'm not seeing. Because he seems to be so happy about this election thing, which just scares the hell out of me, you know? I just, ah! I said to a woman one time, she said, she's a Baptist, and she said, you don't believe in predestination, do you? I said, why, why? Why do you ask it that way? She says, well, that's Presbyterian. 
You even have categories like that words in the Bible. <laughs> Number one, out rejoice them. I, I can remember the early days on a Sunday night. We didn't have many people on Sunday night. Maybe 150 people on Sunday night, something like that, back in the early 80s. And there was a whole line of, and these happened to be women, at the time, I had I had men that were against me too, but the men weren't quite as upset as the women were. So there's about four older women sitting where I wear Scott is sitting back there, the back row, on Sunday night like this. This new pastor, no, they would sing. I don't know why they came. It's their church. That's why they came. <laughs> and here he is, and I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke every Sunday night, putting overhead on and and draw diagrams and just get everything that's could right out of the text. And they just sit there like this. Stand up. Wouldn't take a hymn book in their hands. That was back when we used to use hymn books more than we do now. And uh, one night I was speaking on something, and, and their demeanor just got to me so bad <laughs> that, that I said, Now I know a lot of you don't agree with that. And I named one of them. Looked right at her. What was her name? What was her name? I think I've put it out of my mind now. Uh, oh, it doesn't come to my mind. That's probably good. But I said, I know some of you. I know you don't agree with me. But you know what? I'm going to out-rejoice you and outlast you. That's 21 years ago. They're all dead. <laughs> But they should be. I mean, they were old. I didn't do anything. My people laughed just like you did when I said that. That was not a, an ugly thing to say. Everybody felt that at the moment. Like, he's really okay with what he's saying. And they felt sorry back there. The church was growing. Everybody was happy. We were discovering God afresh. What's wrong with these? Come on, get on board. And, and I'll tell you. There are other stories to tell. This one I do remember his name. His name's Clayton. Clayton and I to this day don't agree on eschatology. He stood up in the middle of the service one time and said, No! When I was preaching on the second coming. <gasps> that never happened before or since. I'm, I'm not a left behind series kind of guy. And, uh, he said, and I said, Clayton, I know where you are, and I know what you believe about the rapture and what I believe about the rapture. And if you're right, this will happen. If I'm right, that will happen. And, brother, I love you. And everybody laughed and it cooled off. Well, to this day, we've had 14 years of pastor's conference at Bethlehem. Clayton comes to everyone. He serves in the kitchen. When his wife, Mary, died, I did the funeral and... He called me from 50 miles away to come do the funeral. Clayton and I are really precious friends. And he thought this new pastor was the absolute worst thing that ever happened to Bethlehem Baptist Church 20 years ago. So it can turn around. Some of your, some of your worst adversaries can become some of your most precious supporters. And then it can both happen. So out rejoice, stay near the Bible, stay a long time, and love them to death. I did a funeral every three weeks for 18 months at Bethlehem. That's the kind of church I went to. They were all old. 
I took a downtown old dying church in Minneapolis. Been there 130 years, 110 years at the time. And uh, I just buried them one after the other. And you know what? They all came to those funerals. And they heard me love them. They heard me preach. They heard me give them hope. And they'd come to me afterwards. And now, stand up here. I want to show you something. You know how old women, give me a hand. You're me now. You know how old women in Minneapolis shake hands? They go like this. It's almost embarrassing. They push your hand against their tummy like this. It's like, I don't know why they do that. It must be a Swedish thing or something. But they would come up to me after, after these things. They'd take my hand, get this, this far away from me, and they'd just push say, Oh, would you do my funeral? <laughs> I, I mean, that's just that's the way to win a church. Just love them. We have a glorious gospel. I'd rather do a funeral any day than a wedding. Because at, at weddings, oh, we got good news about weddings, but we know what these couples are getting into. And <laughs> I, I want to... I want to tell him that this person who died, he's not into marriage right now. He's into heaven, which is far better. You probably think I have a terrible marriage. Don't you? Well, I don't. But I have tasted hard times. I know marriages. They break up their heart. Well, where are we? That was a great lead into what I wanted to ask. Uh, seems like a number of... Families in the church are getting divorced all the time, and I just want to know what your church's stand was on it and uh, how they, what they allow for divorce, and then how does your church react to a family or a couple that does get a divorce in the church? Okay. Okay. A um, couple of things can kill several birds with one stone here. One is a view of divorce and remarriage that I have. Another is how you deal with differences in the church on that issue. Okay? Those are, those are very re- related issues. So let me deal both. I hold a very conservative view in which I do not remarry anybody while their spouse is living. That's what I see in the Bible. That God's ideal for marriage is that it be a lifetime of one man and one woman when divorces happen, which they do, and I don't even, I mean, to me, divorce, I can't keep divorces from happening. What I can do is try to urge the, the spouse to say, I'm going to not remarry while the partner is living. I, I know I'm talking to divorced and remarried people in this room, and I, so don't, don't phase out on me here and feel like, oh, boy, he has me in a lost category or something. I don't. So that's my personal practice and conviction. I'll preach that. I cannot persuade my elders that that's so clearly biblical that we should make it church policy. And that's probably good that I can't because I don't really want to do church discipline merely on the basis of my view if I can't have my elders with me. Church discipline is a church act. It's not a pastor's act. pastor can't just decide who's going to be disciplined. Elders, or whatever you want to call them, elders do discipline. And church does discipline, ultimately. And so we spent four years on this. Four years studying, writing, reading, persuading. 
And we decided as a council we would go with a historic reformed Protestant position, namely unrepentant adultery and decisive desertion are warrants for legitimate divorce and remarriage within the bounds of this church. So that happens. And we don't discipline a couple who, if there is a legitimate severing through repeated act of unrepentant adultery, I mean, the ambiguities of that just come to my mind so fast that you can see why, why I hold the view I do. You know, when, when does it become irreversible? How many times does the adultery have to happen? How long does the separation warrant? I mean, those kinds of things are so difficult to decide. But in our church, um, we will try to shepherd a wife or a husband through a mess like that uh, rather than saying you're out of here if there's a divorce. Now, what do we do if people disobey that rule, which happens yearly in a 2,000-person church, to my sadness? So here you have a woman. She's worked in the youth ministry for nine years. She's got four kids. They've been on the mission field. And suddenly her husband comes to you and says, she's living with another guy. Cries out out in your office. And you just your mouth just drops. Out of the blue. Absolutely, totally out of the blue. You never would have dreamed. And you start to believe in the devil. I mean, you start to believe in evil big time. Where did that come from? And you go to her and she's as brazen and as hard as though she just went to another planet and got a makeover. I mean, it's just awesome, the power of sin and Satan. And when sex blends with certain kinds of rebellion in the heart, it takes an almighty God to get through. So there's a two or three like that right now in my church that need to be disciplined. And the question is, how long do you give them? And we're dragging our feet on a few and we've acted on a few. But discipline's got to happen. There's absolutely no warrant for this. Departure on her part. Nothing biblical comes close to justifying what she's done. And it works the other way, too, with men doing the same thing. Talk about reformed theology. This this is true, folks, right across the theological spectrum. I don't claim, oh, become a Calvinist. That won't ever happen to you. Baloney, you know. Because here we have a couple that comes to our church from a very reformed, straight-laced, you'd call it even fundamental, I think, church. And he takes off. This is a guy who is who thinks I'm liberal because we lift our hands and worship. And he's living with another woman now. Criticizing me for lifting my hands in worship. <gasps> Thank you for vindicating me. So, just right across the board, whether you're charismatic, whether you're fundamental, whether you're reformed, it happens to you. It happens to your church. And so, um, we excommunicated him. Very painful. His wife sits down here in the second row every Sunday with her children, their grown children. And this guy, inexplicably, knows reformed theology backwards and forwards, is anti-charismatic to the hilt, 
and every other kind of anti there is, and uh, lives with another woman. We got him back one time for a few weeks with, with warnings. He does believe in hell. And we said, you're going there probably. It scared, scared him big time, and he came back for, for about three weeks, and then he, he caved again. So that's where I am. That's where we are. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty, uh, you, you would never know it. You would never know it, but I, I'm a real flexible person <laughs> on a few things. I got a phone call the other day. I'll stop with this. This is just, just an interesting illustration. I got a phone call from my son, Barnabas, who just started Wheaton College the other day. And uh, we were talking about the fact that I'm teaching a series on eschatology on Wednesday night right now. I said, I want to orient my people in the lay of the land and take a position with regard to left behind and billions of books being sold, you know. And he said, yeah, people ask me all the time, what's your dad think about this and what's your dad think about that? And I said, what did you tell him? He said, well, I don't know what to tell him about the second coming. I said, that's because you grew up in a really loosey-goosey home. <laughs> and he said, only on that issue. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, al- that's almost right. Where are we? Whoever's got the microphone. Here you go. Uh, while we're into controversy... I thought that I would uh, ask the question, how do you maintain a missionary fervor and evangelistic zeal with your Calvinism? (laughs) i got to be careful here. I want to say, how can you maintain it without a Calvinistic zeal? But I better explain. That's true. That's a legitimate comment. Many do not, he said. And that is true. In fact, my father-in-law, 30 years ago, 33 years ago, I've been married 32 years, was scared to death that his daughter was going to marry a Calvinist. He only knew one kind, primitive Baptists. And they don't do missions. Now, some do. The primitive Baptists are kind of, they too have gotten loose differences among themselves. But all he knew was what you're talking about. Hyper-Calvinists who think you don't share the gospel with anybody until you have a warrant that they're elect. And that, that, that's the technical meaning of hyper-Calvinism. And William Carey, of course, stood up and said, uh, that's not biblical. And the big shot said, sit down, young man. God will reach the nations when he wants to without your help. And he, of course, got in his face and set the pattern. So my answer, the reason I said what I said is the Muslim is the big challenge right now. I mean, Buddhists and Hindus are also big challenges. Everybody's a big challenge. My son Abraham is breaking my heart right now and is a big challenge. I have one hope for my son Abraham. And you know what it is? It isn't his free will. It is almighty God breaking into his life, peeling back the blindness, defeating the devil, opening the eyes of his heart, inclining him to his testimonies and drawing him irresistibly to the sun. That's my only hope for my son. And that's where I, that's what I pray. I pray that way. I, I don't know how Arminians 
pray for the conversion of their children or anybody's conversion for that matter. Because when you pray for somebody's conversion, you, I use new covenant promises. I will take out of you the heart of stone and I will put in the heart of flesh. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will make with you an everlasting covenant that I may not turn away from doing you good. And I will put the fear of me in your heart so that you will not turn away from me. I take those new covenant promises and I say, do it for Abraham. Do it. So my prayers are enlivened by sovereign promises. And my commitment to missions is that he's going to win, but he will not win without you and me. Because he has simply ordained that the gospel be spoken and that his sovereign spirit work through the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not loosey-goosey moving all over the world regenerating people. He is moving straight in square like these jets come up alongside these airlines that have somebody breaking into the cockpit now. Happened again yesterday. So somebody's trying to break in the cockpit. Here comes an F-14. Like this. That's where the Holy Spirit is. Here's the gospel heading for New York. And the Holy Spirit says, that's where I'm going. Right towards New York. If the gospel peels off and goes sits and watch TV, the Holy Spirit sits down. Or goes to somebody else and says, we're going to New York. Get up. I'm calling you to missions. But, but the Holy Spirit doesn't go save people in, in Cameroon or in Algeria or in Afghanistan without the gospel being spoken. So the gospel is spoken in the confidence that a sovereign God. I just thought this morning, the sovereign God will, will, will speak and save. But I thought this morning when Paul got put in prison, like some of us, you know, you may get put in prison. You know what you ought to say to the jailer as they put you in prison for preaching the gospel? And they say, there, now what do you make of your triumphant gospel? You should look them right in the face and say, the word of God is not fettered. I'm fettered. This is a quotation from Paul. I'm fettered. The word of God is not fettered. It will run and it will triumph. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. My Calvinism is all the fire in my bones for missions. So I, I, I have to take questions like that carefully because uh, I feel bad. I really feel bad. It's a legitimate question, especially coming out of, of a situation where all you've known, perhaps, are dead, orthodox, cross your T right, dot your I right Calvinists who spend all their time fighting, infighting struggles about the minutia of the atonement and never witness to anybody with fruitfulness. And if that's all you know, I say, I don't want anything to do with them any more than I want to associate with people who deny the sovereignty of God. If, if you're not evangelistic, if you don't care about lost people, if you don't believe that God has a purpose to save the nations, you're not a Calvinist. Or who cares about the word Calvinist? It's junk the word. It's always got a little C anyway in my vocabulary, even though my spell corrector on the computer insists on making it capital. <laughs> it's always got a little C, and it's a big B in the front of Bible. Biblical Big B, Calvinist, little C. And you can scrap the word as far as I can care and just believe that God saves people. He really saves people. And if he didn't, I wouldn't know what to ask him to do in prayer. And I wouldn't know what to call people to experience except trust him. 
trust him and believe that even the faith is a gift. Oh, I could talk so much more. This is not a, this is not a seminar on Calvinism, but if you want it to be, ask another question. <laughs> Where are we? I'm going to uh, try to make sense of this question. I've been struggling with it since the Campus Outreach Christmas Conference. Um, dealing with issues like our utter depravity and um, how you said last night how we don't add anything to God. We do not improve upon his glory. Right. Um, and the other background concept that he has been eternally happy in past and in the future in and of himself. Yep. And so all those facts I'm struggling with, the ends for which he created the world, yep. us. And in, in Deuteronomy 9, this helps me phrase my question. It says, but they are your people, you're speaking to God, you're, they are your people, your inheritance. And then five other times in Old Testament, it refers to us as his inheritance. Yep. And that combined with the idea of a bridegroom rejoicing over the bride, mm-hmm. like are we, and obviously it's not because of ourselves, but are we providing God with something else, some new joy he didn't have in eternity past? Boy, that is, that's about as ultimate and difficult a question as you can ask. And, and really the big, big heavy hitters in theology, uh, Calvin, in our day, Karl Barth, wrote gobs of pages trying to solve why God created the world without needing the world. And you've posed it just as well as it can be posed. And Edwards has struggled with it as well as anybody, and I don't think I can improve upon his answer. Uh, I can say a little more, just try to put it in more contemporary language. Edwards says, it is no mark of the deficiency of a fountain that it is prone to overflow. Now, that, that's not an ultimately satisfying answer for a rigorous, careful theologian, probably, because the word prone has ambiguities in it. What do you mean prone? So analogies go so far and, and not all the way. But it helped me that the, the overflow of, of creation is no sign of, a, of God feeling a defect that he's got to now fix by creation so that I now, by my existence or my praise or my obedience, make him less defective than he was before he created me to do it. I want to get that model of creation out of my head. Like, don't ever say to your children, God created you because he was lonely. What a horrid thing to say to children. I was not lonely He's infinitely happy, like you said, in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity. But that infinite happiness is such that it is explosively outward directed. Now, uh, I think another piece of the answer as to why the delight he has in his bride, the church or his inheritance, the apple of his eye. I just read this morning in Isaiah. He, I will rejoice over them. I will say, my delight is in you. That's in the Bible. Got to believe that. So how, how can his delight be in me, and yet he was perfectly 
delighted before I was. And Edwards answered, he always had a perfect picture in his mind of that delight and delighted in it before it happened. But he means to externalize, and I, I'm going to get at this both in the, in the next message and in the one tonight. Because really, my whole system of Christian hedonism is an effort to come to terms with this question. Um, I think the mercy of God on display is my delight. And so God's delighting in my delighting in his mercy is simply a way of God's valuing his mercy and valuing what reflects his mercy. So it isn't me in and of myself that delights God. It's all of that reflecting the value of his mercy, which he's always had and known. And I think that's about as far as I can go. I mean, that probably does not satisfactorily answer the question, because I think there are about two or three questions in theology that, that push the limit of answers. That'd be one. The, the ultimate origin of evil would be another. Uh, where did it come from? The first twinkle of evil in Lucifer's mind. Where did that come from? That's, that, to me, is an imponderable question. And uh, so, good. That, don't go crazy at that level. If you live on the edges of eternity too long, you can go crazy. You can lose your mind. And so, walk up to it. Get a few helpers like Edwards and Calvin and others to think with you right there and help you know whether you've gone as far as you can go. And then resolve to live with a few mysteries. And come back to reality and start preaching the gospel and leave some things for God to explain later. Getting near quarter after, how are we doing? Keep going. I'll just keep going as long as the the powers that be keep going. I have a family member who has um, claims to be a Christian and has done something very bad. How do I continue to have a loving relationship with this person and yet not seem to condone what they've done? Yeah, excellent question. Excellent question. Because the Bible really does commend, at times, a holy ostracism for those who have... uh, disobeyed the apostles' teaching. In other words, a kind of... First um, Thessalonians talks about don't have any, don't even eat with them, and don't have anything to do with them, don't treat them as an enemy, but as a brother in order that they come back. So, I'll give you an example. I don't know your situation, so I'll use one that I know of. We have a missionary family, sister, sister has a live-in boyfriend, claims to be a Christian. Christian. This woman, the sister of the missionary family in our church, she doesn't go to our church, so it wasn't our discipline issue, but it was our heart issue. And they're brokenhearted that she's thrown away their parents' standards. She's living with this boy, teen, uh, I think they were in the 20s. And, uh, and they come to me to ask your question. We love our sister, and uh, we don't know how to relate to her. She's doing this thing over here. It's an awful thing. She's doing it. Not just did it, but doing it. And I said, well... She claims to be a believer, which means this is the text right here that relates. Namely, if a brother claims to be a brother and is disobeying, then you exclude. You don't, you don't hang out with him. I said, I would suggest, I know this is going to be hard. I would suggest that you meet her over lunch 
And you say, you plead with her, first of all, with tears in your eyes, that she forsakes sin and get right with God. He'll forgive her for this. There's a future for her life. And plead with her. If she says, you're just a bunch of judgmental Baptists, God's gracious God, he'll forgive me for this. I just need to do it. If she talks like that, then you say, well, I'll make up a name. Mary, um, we believe the Bible teaches that we can't just go on hanging out with you in our usual weekend ways. We can't just go bowling together. We can't just go to see a movie together. We can't just hang out and do pizza and watch a video together because it would just feel to us like everything's the same way it's always been and we're putting approval on this terrible thing you're living in. And so um, we're not going to cut you off entirely. We'll, We'll call you. If you want to talk to us about your soul or about life, we're always available. But we can't. We we just knock out these things that we used to do. And you know, I think, I can't remember how long it was. It was a year or so. They won her back. It, it worked, in other words. It doesn't always work. But in that case, that measure of discipline, of I just called it holy ostracism, loving, tender, kind, not in your face, ugly, get out of our lives, you adulteress or something like that, but rather, we can't condone this. And so we're not going to eat with you and... Uh, and then they pulled back, and, and it, it was strained, it was hard. She, she did not like, she accused them of being intolerant and unkind and uncaring and unchristian. Just like the pastor in Minneapolis accused me of being unchristian, not having the Spirit of Christ when I try to save Jews. And, uh, and God honored it. God honored it. Because what that caused was for her to feel like somebody really takes this seriously. Whereas if you just go on with life as usual, it looks like, well, maybe there is no big deal here, which is where so many of our people in our churches are while living in sin. It just feels nobody seems to be bent out of shape about this. I guess it's not as bad as I thought it was.